on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Everybody goes into an academic environment or a workplace, and the one question they have for themselves is, am I comfortable here? Am I welcome? And judges need to understand that even tiny little things can taint in a workplace, can taint an educational environment. Judges are supposed to not look at the merits of making procedural decisions, let's say statute of limitations decisions. The fact of the matter is that oftentimes the, the merits, the story you're telling, the fairness or unfairness of the story you're telling has a substantial impact um, on the way the judge will also look at procedures. So in one sense, maybe I'm asking lawyers to be at the beginning of the case, what they used to be at the end of the case. At the end of the case, you'll face a jury and you'll tell a story. They need to do that from the very beginning. That was Reuben Gutman and Judge Nancy Gertner. And this is May the Record Reflect. Hello, and welcome back to another episode. I'm Marcy Mangan, the host of this podcast from the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. And today I'm bringing you a special conversation about the impact that changes in pleading standards have had in civil cases, proceedings, and outcomes over the past decade and a half. Later, my guests will put those changes in perspective by discussing a super precedent case they say probably would not have even made it to the Supreme Court at all had today's pleading standards been in effect when the complaint was first lodged. With me is Judge Nancy Gertner, who served as a United States District Court judge in Massachusetts from 1994 to 2011. Prior to her appointment, Judge Gertner was a civil rights and criminal defense attorney. She retired from the federal bench to join the faculty at Harvard Law School and recently served as a commissioner on President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Named one of the most influential lawyers of the past 25 years by Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly, Judge Gertner has published widely on sentencing, discrimination, forensic evidence, women's rights, the jury system, and the Supreme Court. Her two-volume book, Representative Opinions of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was released this spring and will soon be followed by incomplete sentences. Her reflections on the impact of mandatory minimum sentencing on both the defendants she sentenced in her courtroom and on our system of justice as a whole. Joining Judge Gertner is a great friend of the podcast, and thus a man who needs no introduction, but I'm always happy to give him one anyway. Reuben Gutman is a founding member of Gutman, Bushner, and Brooks in Washington, D.C., where his practice involves complex litigation, whistleblowing cases, and class action lawsuits. You can also find Reuben teaching at our deposition courses for public service attorneys. The first edition of his book, Pretrial Advocacy, which he wrote with J.C. Lohr at Rutgers Law, was published last year. And now, here's our interview.
As a nation, we have been fixated on the Supreme Court lately because we know that a number of critical rulings are coming down this summer. When it comes to court cases and the layperson, it's the decisions that suck all the oxygen out of the room. We care about the outcome of a particular case and how it might affect us personally and perhaps even change our lives. What matters less to the layperson, and probably not even at all, is the process of getting a case all the way to the Supreme Court in the first place. But as trial lawyers know, process is the key to accessing justice. Thanks to the civil rights litigation of the 1950s and 60s and the consumer protection litigation of the 60s and 70s, Goliath finally met David and justice was served. Finally, David had access to justice, and it profoundly changed the lives of millions of Americans and in ways that we take for granted. But certain Supreme Court decisions over the last 25 years have changed the process. Two such cases are Bell Atlantic Corp v. Twombly and Ashcroft v. Iqbal. Our experts will delve into the specifics of the changing standards wrought by these two cases, but first I want to give you just a quick refresher on each one. Twombly was a 2007 decision in a class action suit brought by regional phone companies and ISPs alleging that Bell Atlantic had engaged in illegal anti-competitive behaviors. Basically, a couple of telecommunications companies split their turf by region and promised not to compete with one another, with the effect of shutting out smaller providers that couldn't afford to compete with their prices. The part we're concerned with today is whether a complaint contains the facts necessary to make the legal claim plausible. Two years later, in 2009, the court handed down a decision in Iqbal that cemented the stricter pleading standard in Twombly, making it clear that it applies to all civil actions in federal court and not just antitrust cases. Iqbal involved the treatment of detainees after 9-11, alleging that detainees of Muslim, Arab, or Southeast Asian descent were treated differently, more punitively, than others held in federal custody. The part we are concerned with here is where the Supreme Court opined that Iqbal's complaint failed to plead sufficient facts to state a claim for purposeful and unlawful discrimination against the petitioners. Taken together, Twombly and Iqbal raise questions about how to properly apply the revised federal pleading standards, and they can make the calculus at the pleading stage in civil cases quite a bit more opaque for both plaintiffs and defendants. Reuben Gutman, you and I have had a fair bit of back and forth about process over the last few weeks. What do you think is important for listeners to know about process and David's access to justice? Well, process in uh, our rule of law is everything. In 1803, in the famous case of Marbury versus Madison, Justice Marshall said that the very essence of civil liberty consists of uh, the right of every individual to claim protection of laws. And we do that through process. Process separates us out from other countries. Other countries may have substantive laws, but no mechanism to vindicate rights accorded by those laws. Uh, our court system is very, very important. All of the civil rights uh, inroads that you talked about in the 
50s and 60s were uh, ginned up, generated through litigation, through uh, the ability of people like Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston to go to court using the process that was accorded to them and uh, uh, bring lawsuits. And these lawsuits were not only important in terms of getting a ruling from the court, but they were important in terms of rallying their constituency behind their cause. So the lawsuits are not only mechanisms to get a ruling, they're mechanisms to organize, they're mechanisms to lend transparency to problems. So when the rules change, the case outcomes change too. And that is what gets people's attention, I think. Exactly. You know, you, you change the rules of the game, you change, change the outcome. Uh, we can uh, change the result uh, by either varying uh, the substantive law or we can change the result by varying the procedural law. We can vary the procedural law by creating hurdles that make it impossible for people to get to a jury. And we can do that through changing the rules governing the requirements of pleading. We can change it through the rules governing uh, uh, what you have to show to get past summary judgment. We can change the rules uh, governing uh, experts or class actions. Any one of these uh, rule changes affecting any one of a number of things can absolutely affect the outcome and deny individuals the ability to vindicate uh, rights to to get the uh, uh, you know rights accorded by law. So then let's talk about those processes. You touched on them a little bit, and there are a number of procedural changes that have affected litigation in the public interest sphere over the last few decades. But we're just going to touch on the big three today, which are changes in pleading standards, changes in class certification standards, and changes in expert standards. Changes in two of these processes, namely pleading standards and expert standards, have created a situation where the judge, in effect, becomes a gatekeeper. And since we happen to have a judge here today, who better to lead us in that discussion? Judge Nancy Gertner, what can you tell us about changes in pleading standards? Essentially, the cases you described are cases that enabled a judge to intervene and stop a lawsuit uh, at an earlier stage than ever before. Before the Iqbal and Twomley cases, before the changes to summary judgment, essentially a judge would look at a complaint and say, is there any set of facts by which a jury might conclude uh, that this case should go forward, that this case deserves a finding of liability? And it was essentially not exercising any not, you know, not exercising any judgment beyond saying, if believed, would this complaint survive? What essentially Iqbal and Twomley did is raise the question, not if believed, should this complaint survive, but if I believe, should this complaint survive? It changed the standards from the standards I described to determining whether or not uh, the allegations were plausible. I can't tell you how troubling I find that. A, a court First of all, knowing very little about the case, we're talking about the motion to dismiss stage, um, and certainly not knowing in the full, you know, flooring, full um, uh, elaboration of a trial in the summary judgment stage, is determining what is plausible. I know from having been a criminal defense lawyer and civil rights lawyer and a judge, and now sort of a litigator as well. Uh, that what I may find plausible may be not what a jury finds plausible. 
that plausibility is in fact a contextual analysis in context. And when I sat on the bench, there were numbers of times, in fact, that my law clerk would say to me, judge, you can get rid of this case. You can get rid of this case. The allegations are not plausible. And I would turn to the law clerk and say, to whom? To you? To me? To some of my male colleagues on the bench? So essentially, plausibility enabled the judges uh, who are not the most diverse group in the world to make their own decisions about what, uh, whether a case should proceed. Ruben, you have had a great deal of experience in dealing with class certifications in your law practice. What can you tell us about the changes in class certifications? I think that uh, class certifications are uh, troubling in the area of civil rights. Uh, if you go back uh, 35 or so years ago when I graduated from law school and studied class actions, you saw that they were uh, used heavily in the civil rights areas. Now it's virtually impossible to certify a class action in the civil rights area. And where you're seeing uh, class actions in, is in areas like antitrust and securities laws. But uh, as to civil rights and products liability, uh, I would say that uh, uh, the ability of a plaintiff uh, to bring a class action is extraordinarily difficult. And the problem is, is that in terms of proof, uh, sometimes the only way that you can show discrimination in a workplace is by looking at the totality of the workplace. And uh, having a class action, uh, in, you know, is, is, part, is, is, is part of the narrative, number one. And number two, uh, you may be in a situation like, for example, a Walmart uh, where the plaintiffs uh, lost uh, two or three thousand uh, dollars because there's a wage differential. And that type of case is not uh, economically efficient to be brought on an individual basis. And uh, you can't you it's virtually impossible to certify those types types of cases these days. And certainly hostile work environment cases are problematic. Uh, and and as a consequence of this, I think and Judge Gertner can speak to this. We've seen a rise in multi-district litigation. And there's a whole problem uh, set there because uh, class actions are regulated by the federal rules of civil procedure, but uh, uh, the, the MDL world, Judge Gertner, I think is the wild, wild west, is it not? No, there's no question about that. Uh, the the multi-district litigation process at, it, it doesn't work as a fair substitute for a robust class action practice. Uh, class action practice, as Ruben described, is regulated by the, by the rules, by the civil rules, um, and the judge's determinations with respect to class actions can be appealed. Multi-district litigation, though there are rules, uh, is really uh, a black box. Uh, uh, as I recalled, when I was just about to leave the bench, uh, there was a discrimination case that had been filed in Boston, Chicago, and San Francisco. Uh, and I was the first filed, and by any set of facts, one would imagine that my case would have been the first I would get the assignment. This was before they knew that I was actually leaving the bench, but it was my last year on the bench. I should have gotten the assignment. Instead, the case goes to the multi-district litigation committee and it went to a judge in Memphis. That's a determination, that's a critical, um, uh, arguably procedural issue that had a substantial effect on the outcome. The judges that to whom the case had originally landed uh, 
you know, had a different view of, of civil rights litigation than this particular judge in Memphis. And in short order, the cases were dismissed. Again, judgment matters here. And if, there, if, you, if you bury procedures uh, outside of the view of the rules, then the lawyers and the public can't see where the judgments are. So what are some of the changes then in expert standards? What are some of the things that our listeners need to know about that? Actually, Ruben and I actually may disagree about this. Uh, Certainly, on the one hand, the the rule is making clear that the standard of proof is a fair preponderance of the evidence. Uh, And in addition, that reliability is not just an abstraction, but that the expert is relying on reliable methods. Uh, in making his or her determination. Again, this is an instance in which the judge is a gatekeeper. And let me split my observations into criminal and civil. On the criminal side, Rule 702 is effectively irrelevant. And it's effectively irrelevant because on the criminal side, uh, evidence that has been admitted for years, which should not continue to be admitted, uh, arson evidence, blood spatter evidence, uh, you know, bite mark evidence, evidence that really, in the view of later uh, experts, have made it clear should never have been admitted, continues to be admitted. Uh, so I'm not sure that Rule 702 will make a substantial difference uh, on the criminal side. In addition, the standard of review, as with all evidentiary issues, is abuse of discretion. So that means I could do a searching review in my courtroom and exclude evidence. Uh, and the guy in the courtroom next to me can say just the opposite. Uh, it's been admitted for century uh, for years. I will therefore admit it as well, um, and uh, and we'll both be affirmed. Uh, on the civil side, Rule 702 changes could make a difference, um, and are bound to increase the expense of introducing evidence of uh, from from experts. Uh, because in, in a civil cases, both sides are well represented, both sides have resources, and there can be meaningful uh, litigation of these issues. Uh, but again, the standard of, of review is abuse of discretion, so I'm not sure what a difference it would actually make. So Judge Gardner, I think we were talk- you were talking about the proposed changes in Rule mm-hmm. 702, but there's, I think, a threshold question about the Daubert decision making the judge or giving the judge the ability to be the gatekeeper to determine whether the expert gets to testify in the first place. And in many situations, the expert is, is the linchpin of a necessary element um, to prove a case. And so if you, if you knock out the expert, you knock out the case, especially, for example, in a securities case where you've got you know, questions of loss causation, or, for example, in a, in a class action where you actually need the expert to testify at the fairness hearing. And so it giving the judge, at least from my plaintiff's perspective, the ability to knock out that expert is giving the judge another another mechanism to knock out your entire case, whether it be through, uh, in the first instance, motion to dismiss, the ability to deny uh, class certification. Of course, course there's the the expert issue. And, And it would seem to me that I guess I would have a concern, and I guess I'd throw it to you, Judge Gertner. I mean, I guess you would, is it possible that judges come to different conclusions about it, whether an expert should be able to testify? Sure, judges will come to different conclusions. Um, and the, the again, the, I keep on raising, this has become my favorite word, is the issue of context, um, which is that 
the question of the admissibility of expert testimony. I mean, I think it's right that judges be the gatekeepers with respect to that. The problem is uh, how do they learn about the case? What do they learn about the case? And where are they, how the, are they trained with respect to that? And uh, the, the problem is that uh, depending upon where the challenge to the expert comes in, because it comes in at summary judgment, then it becomes part of, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes a very formal kind of analysis of what can be proved and what can't be proved. Um, and yes, it becomes another tripwire, um, a way of excluding and sort of undermining a case. But I'm more concerned about how a judge decides that, how a judge looks at that and how it fits into larger theories in the case. Um, uh, and I wonder that whether summary judgment meaningfully provides that. I, I guess what, what concerns me is uh, in the 50s, uh, we had uh, an era of, I guess, what uh, uh, Ken Clark uh, would call uh, honest discrimination. That is, you, 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 know, you were told that you can't come to this school because of the color of your skin. And then as we, uh, you know, came down with various decisions and enacted the civil rights legislation of the 60s, uh, Clark would say that, uh, Professor Clark would say that we, we came into an era of, era of dishonest discrimination where pretext uh, was, uh, was significant and uh, proof was, was more complex. And so the role of these experts, it seems to me, in civil rights cases uh, is particularly more uh, more more significant, especially maybe in the area of, uh, of, of injury. And I was just wondering what kind of thoughts you had, at least uh, in terms of how judges might differ in terms of how they dealt with experts in the civil rights arena. Well, I think civil rights is the area in which the procedural changes that we've been talking about have had the most devastating impact. Um, again, because plausibility, on the one hand, as we've said, is a is a um, is really in the eyes of the beholder. Now, arguably, evaluation of expert testimony is not shouldn't be in the eyes of the beholder. A judge should uh, be able to, you know, there there would be more objective standards. But let me add to the discussion a new pressure, not just the issues with respect to Iqbal and Twomley and experts, but somewhere in the 1990s, the Civil Justice Reform Act was implemented. And that was really part of a, of a move to have judges be really robust gatekeepers, case managers. All of a sudden, the administrative office began to require that judges uh, just, you know, list uh, their, their, their cases, the motions that are pending for six months. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the view of a, of a good judge, it's not a judge who's, uh, who's whose uh, decisions were the most just, but the judge who disposed of the most cases. All of a sudden, there were pressures to settle cases. And all of a sudden, there were pressures to look critically at dismissal motions, at summary judgment motions, and at expert testimony. So it's almost as if the culture dramatically changed. And it became, in my view, an anti-trial culture, anti-jury trial culture. So in that situation, the judge is sitting down evaluating expert testimony and evaluating summary judgment, not with a view to um, encourage trials, but with a view to determine to sort of weed out the cases that shouldn't go to trial. And the pressure 
uh, in my view, the case management pressure. The wonderful quote from Howard Coe that says, just because you can count something, and I'm paraphrasing, doesn't mean it's right to count it. So I would be measured as a judge by what, you know, how quickly I disposed of cases. I wouldn't be measured on whether my decisions were fair. And that, that really changed the culture. Well, since we've been talking about civil rights and the expert testimony and some of them, um, why don't we talk about a really big case? Um, right now, we're recording this episode in late May. And last week, May 17th, marked the 78th anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education, in which nine justices of the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled that racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional, that the doctrine of separate but equal as laid out in Plessy v. Ferguson is inherently anything but. Now, Brown is considered a super precedent, a decision that is so deeply ingrained in our laws, so consequential that it's foundational to our society and would be extremely difficult to overturn, and rightfully so. But what's interesting about Brown and relevant to our conversation today is that that case made it as far as it did thanks in part to things like pleading standards and standards dictating expert testimony. Now, like all other 78-year-olds, Brown doesn't look quite the way it did when it was, um, so to speak, born. And as we've been saying today, things have changed. And you kind of have to wonder what a case like Brown would even look like if it were litigated under today's procedural standards. What do you think, Ruben? Well, first of all, you know, uh, the Brown litigation really benefited from the promulgation of, um, you know, the federal rules of civil procedure, which dates back to 1938. And the reason I say that is, is because you had the NAACP operating out of New York and Baltimore, and they could carry on a national litigation effort with with very standardized and simple rules. Um, the, the Brown complaint itself uh, was a seven page complaint seven pages. Um, and it had one paragraph in it, which had allegations, conclusory allegations, which I would say uh, probably would be knocked out under, under Iqbal and Twombly, uh, regarding class certification. Um, if you take the Brown complaint and you put it to the test of Iqbal and Twombly and our uh, contemporary standards governing class certification and experts, I would say to you, there's a strong likelihood that this complaint uh, with its conclusory allegations would go in front of a judge and a judge would first be required under the Iqbal pleading standard to strip out all the conclusory allegations. In other words, anything that says that, that you know, uh, the state of Kansas violated uh, the 14th Amendment, that's a conclusory allegation. It's not, not, not fact. And that what you're left with in the Brown complaint is a simple factual allegation that Linda Brown had to walk a mile and a half uh, to her school, and therefore the 14th Amendment was violated. And you could very well see a judge, particularly in that era, if not this era, actually, say, well, that doesn't state a plausible, plausible claim for violation of the 14th Amendment. Um, as to the question of class certification, uh, the class includes the entire state of Kansas, but there's only one allegation uh, with regard to a particular school. So it's hard to say that uh, this, this is even susceptible to class treatment. 
And as to, as to experts, ultimately, there was an expert which was critically important to the Brown litigation. You see that in footnote 11 of the Brown decision. And that was uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark and, and their doll study. And there's a question as to uh, how that, uh, you know, that expert testimony would be treated under today's Daubert standard. And of course, uh, if you think about uh, the Brown case, uh, it was decided, I think, in 1954. And by the time it was decided, Linda Brown, I think, was at least in junior high school. And even, in fact, if you got to the question of class certification, there would be an appeal under Rule 23F uh, as to by, by any of the parties challenging class certification. And maybe Linda Brown would have been in college by the time that issue was determined. Um, and, and conceptually, if you think about it, it's, it's a case seeking injunctive relief, meaning that there's some immediacy required to, you know, the court stepping in. So what strikes me uh, about the Brown case is, is that I look at all these procedural changes that we've been talking about over the last 20 or 30 minutes or so, and I say to myself, what impact would these procedural changes have on one of our most sacred decisions? And the answer that I, or the conclusion I come up with is it would have precluded, it would have precluded this case from going forward. And if you look at the Rules Enabling Act, which allowed for the promulgation of the Federal Civil Procedure in 1938 in the first place, is no procedural rule is supposed to really be outcome determinative. It's supposed to be process driven. And in fact, the, this litmus test that we've been talking about, or I've been talking about, shows that in fact, we've put in place rules that in fact are, I think, outcome determinative. I think it's also, when you, when you sort of go 30,000 feet high for a moment. Th these are the rules that, that really, when we talk about access to justice, these are the rules that affect access to justice. And what it means is while the rule changes, particularly the Civil Justice Reform Act was intended to deal with the cost of litigation, skyrocketing cost of litigation, that was the idea and the delays. In fact, front-loading all of these issues in the way we've described, in fact, have increased the cost of litigation. And for poor plaintiffs, discrimination plaintiffs, who don't have the kinds of resources of big firm uh, behind them, who don't really know what's going on in the company that they're suing, front-loading a case means that they will not have access to information when they need it. Front-loading the complaint, as in Brown versus Board of Education, required knowing much, much more statistically about what was going on in the state than they had. So you're raising the bar precisely for the plaintiffs that need judicial relief the most. And I think that that's the story of Brown. And, and you know, we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, at the ground of litigation, we're seeing complaints that are exponentially longer, larger than they've ever been. It is not uh, unusual. And I, I can't speak from the judge's vantage point. I'd like to hear Judge Gardner speak to it. We're seeing complaints at least hundreds of pages long. And, and uh, you know, compare that to the Brown seven-page complaint, which really is an elegant complaint. It's well-written. I understand it. It's simple. But if you have uh, judges' chambers with so many clerks and each complaint is now over 100 pages long, it's a real problem. I, I would submit, I would suggest, and I'd love to hear Judge Gertner speak on it, it's a problem for judges who have to deal with this. It's a question of 
dealing with a complaint before you know anything about the case. That it was one thing to talk about making decisions of procedural decisions all along before trial when you begin to slowly get to know a case, but this is really initial and visceral. And and that it has to be that way. So you're 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 making decisions before you know anything about uh, the case and motions to dismiss are essentially. You may know in terms of what's written on the page, but there's a huge difference between knowing what's written on a page and understanding what the case is about. Uh, and so again, the people this disserves are the people that don't have access to fancy lawyers with lots of resources and don't have access to information because the complaint to satisfy these pleading standards requires information. And that's, that's an enormous uh, difference. I, I think I want to say that, that there, there's a couple of faulty assumptions um, that have driven some of these, um, I'd say, common law reforms. One is that, you know, there's a huge discovery is imposing a huge burden on corporate America that uh, there's a lot of frivolous lawsuits. And, uh, you know, I've recently just re-reviewed the work of uh, Professor Miller at NYU. And, and, you know, really a lot of that is without basis. But the other point I think that's important is, is that even if a case loses, right, it may reveal information uh, which will drive legislative oversight. We, we have three branches of government and they play off each other. And the one example I want to give is uh, the Lily Ledbetter case. The Supreme Court ruled against Lily Ledbetter. It said her statute of limitations, it was a civil rights pay equity case, was blown. And you could take the position that, oh, that case was frivolous, it tied up the court system, it should never have been brought. On the other hand, the transparency of the case, the fact that it went through the system, caused Congress to take a hard look at the law. And the first thing that President Obama did when he came into office was to, was to sign the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Pay Act, which uh, dealt with the statute of limitations in those types of cases. Um, so it's, it's important, even th these cases have some social importance, even, even, even in situations, in some situations where ultimately the plaintiff doesn't prevail. That actually argument goes in both directions, in a way, um, in the sense that uh, uh, an elaborate story, a complaint that is a narrative that tells a story that the press can pick up. Uh, can can do a great deal of good. Uh, it becomes a narrative that becomes, I mean, Lily Ledo's case became the narrative that fueled the changes in the legislation. On the other hand, the need for that robust narrative at the beginning also has the problems that we've been talking about, which is Lily Ledbetter put in her complaint all that she knew. And that was the point. As a poor plaintiff, uh, who was in a lower position in the company? She didn't know anymore. But the, on the point, uh, on the point again about the relationship between process and substance, there were changes a couple of years ago in the discovery rules, so that a judge should determine whether or not the discovery is proportionate. Look at what the plaintiff is requesting and look at proportionality of the discovery. Now that sounds very rational. How do you value? Lily Ledbetter's relatively low damages. How do you value the dignitary harms of a sexual harassment case? I mean, essentially, proportionality is easily uh, applied in a world in which 
both sides are seeking gigantic amounts of money, but that was never the measure for civil rights laws. And so that is a change that has implications on the outcomes of these cases and not just their litigation. So that's all rather sobering. What is the answer? Is there an answer? Are there ways around it that um, practice, practitioners who are facing these obstacles can get around them? Well, I have a policy answer and a practical answer. Let me start with the policy answer. Um, a premise of the civil rules was that they applied to all, uh, every kind of case. And it may be there need to be special rules for civil rights cases. It may be that we need to move away from the notion that there is a one size fit all with respect to procedure. Um, so, you know, the e-discovery, huge amounts of data and and uh, and emails and memos really exist in one kind of case. It really rarely exists in another kind of case. And the notion of coming up with rules that are dealing with vastly different litigations, it seems to me was a, it doesn't make any sense today. And then my practical suggestion, which I think I've said over and over again to my law clerks and the lawyers in front of me is, tell me a story. Tell me a story. You know, you, the judges are supposed to not look at the merits of making procedural decisions, let's say statute of limitations decisions. The fact of the matter is that oftentimes the, the merits, the story you're telling, the fairness or unfairness of the story you're telling has a substantial impact um, on the way the judge will also look at procedures. So in one sense, maybe I'm asking lawyers to be at the beginning of the case, what they used to be at the end of the case. At the end of the case, you'll face a jury and you'll tell a story. They need to do that from the very beginning, uh, not just to get past Iqbal and Twomley, but to get the judge to care about the outcome. I think, I think we need to do a better job at teaching lawyers uh, how to put together and try civil rights cases. The proof is more complex than it ever was, right? Uh, we're dealing with impacts on uh, victims that are subjective, and we need to be able to, as Judge Gertner says, create the narrative that creates the aha moment for even some judge uh, who's, you know, 90 years old, lived in a different era, and doesn't believe in civil rights to begin with. Um, we've got to recognize that that obstacle. I know that there are certain jurisdictions that I'm going to get a favorable uh, reception from a court and some jurisdictions and with some judges, I'm absolutely not. And we need to, to deal, learn how to deal in both. Um, I don't think law schools are doing as good a job as they could at, at teaching uh, the practicalities of, of addressing the problem, teaching students how to, how to put these cases together. I think we need to train train lawyers to do that. Um, I also think that um, the press um, gravitates towards covering um, the civil rights violations that are visible, that are recorded, and those are obviously very, very important because uh, they they're they're tragic. But there are reminders that there's an underbelly uh, of people who are victims. There are countless numbers of those people, and those are the kinds of people who need, need redress. The problem that we're seeing is, is that uh, these people are being further victimized because procedural changes are impeding their ability to have their day in court, right? 
I think the case that Judge Gertner talks about where the inappropriate word was used went up to the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit initially said that word was used once, no problem. And then there was a public outcry and the 11th Circuit, uh, you know, uh, reheard the case on Bonk and, uh, you know, they, they reversed itself themselves. Um, what I tell my students I teach equal protection is, is, you know, uh, how many times with regard to the use of these words do you have to be not to be crass, but how, how many times do you have to pee in the cream before you decide not to drink the milk? Um, Everybody goes into an academic environment or a workplace, and the one question they have for themselves is, am I comfortable here? Am I welcome? And judges need to understand that even tiny little things can taint in a workplace, can taint an educational environment. We, as I said, need to do a better job of teaching students on how to deal with judges like that, teaching students how to, how to put together the narrative, educating them. I think Nita does a lot of great things in that area. And, and, you know, that's why I think it's important that we're having this dialogue with the Nita audience. And also, I think for the press who might be listening to this, I think they need to think more about these procedural cases. And I guess the third component is, is that we have a lot of people or academics who are striving just to get something published and publish some empirical data, you know. And I read one piece a number of years ago about uh, some academics who thought it was a clever idea to have plaintiffs and defendants share the costs of discovery. And I think they were well-meaning people, but I don't think they considered what impact that would have on a civil rights case, right? But I, I also think you have to, you have to train judges. Uh, an article that I wrote right after I left the bench actually is now used in training federal judges, which gives me great pleasure. Uh, so part of the case management pressure was you only wrote an opinion if you had to. You only wrote a decision if you had to. And if you were dismissing the case, uh, let's say in a civil rights case, therefore ruling in favor of the defendant, you had to write an opinion because it was going to go up to the Court of Appeals. But if you were ruling for the plaintiff, the case just went on to trial. So you didn't have to write an opinion. And what happened was the law evolved completely in terms of the losing cases. Because the only time you wrote, you wrote an opinion was when the plaintiff lost. And you can watch the evolution of precedent based solely on that. And what happens is the judges, when you kept on saying, here's precedent for how to dismiss this case, and it, you know this wonderful description of how to dismiss this case, I believe that judges lost the ability to envision how not to dismiss this case. What was, they were constantly talking about what wasn't discrimination, and lost the ability to identify what was discrimination. So judges have to be told, you know, it may take longer for you to write an opinion in a case where you are describing the plaintiff winning and therefore going on to trial, rather not winning generally, but going on to trial. But you need to do that because the, the narrative of what is a meritorious plaintiff claim needs to be out there just as much as the narratives of failed claims. So you do have to change judges. You have to, I also, by the way, believe very much that you also have to keep book on judges. When we studied the statistics about employment cases, one, uh, a lawyer in Atlanta studied statistics in employment cases, one judge was a 90% dismissal. So that meant that having any discretion with respect to Iqbal or Twombly or summary judgment, this judge invariably found no discrimination. 
And if, if the cases are not appealed, no one knows that. And I think that has to be surfaced. You have to say, how did it happen? In every moment when you could exercise your discretion, you did so against the plaintiff. Uh, it looks very, uh, looks very abstract. It looks very rational. But in fact, your biases are showing. And sometimes the only way to look at that is by keeping book. Last question. Um, are there any positives that either of you think have come from these two decisions, Twombly and Iqbal? Well, I mean, the one positive, I suppose, is when I teach students on, uh, about cross-examination or any kind of an examination, uh, you know, it, it makes us think about the difference between eliciting of, uh, factual answers and conclusory answers. And obviously, if you're in front of a jury, uh, it's uh, more compelling to give the jury uh, pure facts and assemble the facts and let them, you know, lead them to the point where they're making the decision. So from a teaching vantage point, I use them in teaching. Uh, but from a, a process vantage point, uh, no. I mean, I think that what ha what's happening is is that everybody who's a plaintiff uh, knows that the judge is going to uh, use his own uh, uh, personal perspective in determining the plausibility of the case. And um, uh, plaintiffs, obviously, are, are doing more forum shopping than they've ever done. And this whole... Uh, idea that, uh, you know, we want to elect the next president because he's going to appoint the judges really flows from the idea, the notion that uh, these judges more so now than ever are gatekeepers. And uh, I think it was Justice Roberts when he was uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee said, I just call balls and strikes. Well, that's just not true. Uh, they don't call balls and strikes. You know, they 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 determine the strike zone. They determine the, the distance between first and second base. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that I think we need to do two things. We need to examine what led to these kinds of changes. The premise that the cases that, that there were caseload pressures and that the transaction costs of federal court were too high is a premise I think that needs to be reexamined. State courts with triple the caseload of the federal courts with fewer resources. Uh, manage to get through, uh, you know, their dockets. And what we've done is we've limited the federal court's role in many of those areas. So, I mean, I think we have to re-examine that. We have to re-examine it with respect to particular cases. I think we have to educate judges that their job is not to figure out a way to dismiss the case, no matter what it looks for their caseload statistics. And we have to teach lawyers that you really have to address the premises of the judge in front of you. In a discrimination case, for example, if you were before Justice Roberts, he believes that the way to end discrimination against black people is to stop discriminating against black people, i.e. no affirmative action, no disparate impact analysis. Uh, and it's a view of the world which simply doesn't match the world. It doesn't match the reality of the world. Um, and that's what you, or the, or the language in Justice Alito's draft abortion decision that apparently discrimination against women is over. I somehow didn't get the memo. Uh, so, I mean, I think that there's a huge amount of education that needs to be done, both at the district court level and at the court of appeals level. I say, we, we have a legacy of discrimination in this country. It wasn't until 1920 that uh, we amended the Constitution to give uh, guarantee women the right to vote. It wasn't until 1971 uh, that the court uh, determined that the 14th Amendment 
uh, actually uh, applied applied to gender gender discrimination. And in 1926, the Supreme Court uh, okayed the right for discriminatory covenants in housing contracts. And the legacy of this discrimination doesn't get solved in in a century. We're still we're still facing it. Um, you know, people do laud the Brown decision, okay? But Brown was, um, you know, it wasn't an integration decision. It was a desegregation decision. And and the problem is, is you still had, because of the legacy of restrictive covenants, you know, areas that were black and areas that were white. And so it, it we're, still, we're still dealing with that. We are not going to be over discrimination in my lifetime. And I think that's quite unfortunate. Well, very weighty stuff, for sure. Um, I appreciate you both making time to come and talk about these things that are so important to um, our trial community. Um, but I'm going to lighten things up with our sign-off question. And ladies first, Judge Gertner, if you could have been part of any trial, whether present day or in the past, what trial would you choose and why? I would have been, I would have wanted to litigate Roe v. Wade. Um, to some degree, what we now know about the role of choice in equality, we did not know then. And so that case went off in a direction which, I, which certainly was flawed. The outcome was right, but as Justice Ginsburg described, uh, it would have been better to situate the right to choose when and whether to be a mother in the broader issues of. Uh, discrimination than to talk about the right to make it than to medicalize it, not a medical issue. Ruben, your turn. I suppose Griggs versus Duke Power. You know, it's it's a case where uh, facially neutral uh, criteria, or at least, uh, were were used to discriminate uh, against minorities, and um, uh, the outcome of that case really changed the lives for a lot of people and uh, created immense precedent. And uh, it was a case that uh, required the application of statistics to the law uh, and a number of disciplines. And of course, I guess it was a, a class action. Uh, so it's the kind of case I wanted to be involved, want, would want to be involved in. It's the kind of case where, you know, uh, 20 years later, 30 years later, I could go back to the community and I could really see the impact of that kind of decision. And that is a wrap. I would like to thank our guests, Judge Nancy Gertner and Ruben Gutman, for bringing to Nita a conversation that potentially has wide-ranging effects on all of us. And thanks to you for tuning in. We know that there is a lot of good content out there that competes for your attention. So in everything we do at Nita, we strive to make your investment in us worthwhile by giving you what you need for your trial practice. Please check the show notes for information and links mentioned in this episode. And while you're at it, subscribe to May the Record Reflect wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Happy summer, everyone. I look forward to catching up with you next month. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.